You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 84, The Battle of the Three Emperors. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I want to thank those of you who took the announcement at the beginning of last episode to heart and have joined us on Patreon. The numbers are still not quite where I would like to see them, but we are definitely trending in the right direction. If you are feeling a little pang of guilt at the mention of Patreon, it's not too late to repent and enjoy the rest of the episode ad-free. Just go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Age of Napoleon. Anyway, we have finally arrived at the Battle of Austerlitz, arguably the greatest victory of Napoleon's career. Podcasting is not the best medium to describe a battle. Without the benefit of maps, it's hard to convey a bird's-eye view of events without getting totally bogged down in details. And so, just like most of the battles we've covered on this show, I've decided to give you a more impressionistic image. To try to give you a feel for the course of events, and highlight a few particularly pivotal, exciting, or even funny episodes. If you do want to try to follow along and play armchair general, I think I've given you the tools to do so. But, if you want to just sit back and enjoy the show without worrying too much about battlefield geography, or trying to trace each individual troop movement, it should still be intelligible. So, with that caveat, on to Austerlitz. We left off last time in the wee hours of December 2nd, 1805. The Grande Armée was near the city of Brune in the modern Czech Republic. Napoleon strode through his soldiers' camps. As he passed, his men lit torches and shouted out, Long live the emperor! It was the first anniversary of the coronation, and Napoleon called it the finest evening of his life. Emotions were running high because everyone knew there would be a battle in the morning. The coalition forces were camped only a few miles away. This army was led by one of Russia's greatest soldiers, Prince Mikhail Kutuzov, but accompanied by both the Russian and Austrian emperors, who often overruled him. The two armies were so close that their outposts and picket lines were almost in contact. As Napoleon walked through the camps of the Grande Armée, his orders for the next day's combat were already in the hands of his officers. After his walk, the Emperor of the French returned to his headquarters and ate a simple dinner, 
fried potatoes with onions, then curled up on a bed of straw next to a campfire to get a few hours rest. There is that old stereotype of the commanding general being unable to sleep on the eve of battle, but Napoleon was notorious for his ability to sleep wherever and whenever he pleased. And in any case, Bonaparte showed no outward sign of anxiety. In fact, he was supremely confident. In his bulletin to the army, he had not only predicted victory, but a decisive triumph, big enough to end this war. It was a good thing for the French that their emperor was so confident, because the country's strategic picture was beginning to darken. It was a remarkable situation. The French armies had been triumphant on every front. Napoleon started the war by destroying an entire coalition army, inflicting severe damage on a second army, and occupying most of the Habsburg heartland, including their capital. In Italy, Marshal André Massena had fought the main Habsburg field army under Archduke Charles to a standstill, and then harried them all the way into Austria. The Grande Armée had performed brilliantly. Napoleon was at the height of his powers as a leader and strategist. The coalition had yet to win a single major land battle. And yet, in spite of all this dazzling success, it seemed the momentum of the war was about to turn against the French. As I mentioned at the beginning of this war, the forces arrayed against France far outnumbered Napoleon's forces. However, at the outbreak of hostilities, coalition troops were scattered all over the continent, while Napoleon's units were basically concentrated along two fronts, right on the border of Austrian territory. The French had been able to do some astonishing things with this temporary numerical advantage they enjoyed at the beginning of the war, but as Napoleon and his army prepared for battle, there was every indication that this temporary advantage would soon come to an end. In less than two weeks, Prussia's ultimatum to Napoleon would expire, and its indecisive king, Frederick William III, would finally bring his country into the war against France. With Prussia on their side, the ranks of the coalition armies would swell by well over 100,000 men, considered by many to be the best soldiers on the continent. Perhaps even worse for Napoleon, Prussian entry into the war would expose the rear of his army and almost his entire supply line to enemy attack. Elsewhere in northern Germany, a combined British, Russian, and Swedish army had arrived by sea and was consolidating its forces to march south against the French. There were also more reinforcements on the way from Russia, and of course, Archduke Charles was still on the loose with a large Austrian army. Marshal Massena was on his heels, but with a much smaller force. By this point, Massena couldn't do much more than shadow the Archduke, as he headed northeast to link up with Kutuzov and the main coalition army. In short, Allied forces were streaming towards the Grande Armée from almost every direction. Even a commander of Napoleon's genius, with an army as powerful as the Grande Armée, would have no chance of intercepting all these forces and defeating them before they could unite. So, on the eve of battle, it looked like the coalition was poised to recover from the disasters of the preceding months, and maybe even turn the tide of the war. If Napoleon failed to win a decisive victory on December 2nd, 
his strategic situation would become very precarious very soon. Even a minor limited victory would probably not be enough to stop the momentum of events from carrying the tides of war towards the coalition. France needed to land a knockout blow. As Napoleon himself put it, quote, We must finish this campaign with a thunderbolt that will shatter the pride of our enemies. End quote. He released a bulletin to the Grande Armée sketching out his plan for the battle. Quote, While the enemy march upon my batteries, they will open their flanks to attack. End quote. To understand exactly how this was supposed to work, we need to look at the terrain of the battlefield. Napoleon had chosen this ground quite deliberately, with a specific strategy in mind. As I said, geography doesn't translate very well to this format, but I'll do my best to make this intelligible without a map. Don't feel like you have to memorize every detail of the terrain. I will be repeating most of this, and the narrative should be complete even without a perfect understanding of the terrain. So, imagine a map with north at the top and south at the bottom. The Grande Armée was positioned in a line right down the middle, facing east, so Napoleon's left flank was in the north, and his right flank was in the south. Most of the Grande Armée was positioned just behind a creek, the Goldbach Stream, but this was not much of a natural barrier, it could easily be walked over. The coalition army was in the northwest, and in the early hours of December 2nd, it was moving to position itself roughly in a line facing Napoleon. In the northwest corner of the map, behind the French lines, is the city of Brune, the regional capital and a major city by the standards of the time, although it would be not much more than a large town by today's standards. Today, it is known as Brno, but I'm going to be using the German names for all these places. No offense to our Czech listeners, but this is how they were referred to at the time, and that's how most English-speaking scholars refer to them today, and I don't want to confuse people. One of the most important features on the battlefield was the highway south of Brune, just a few miles behind the French lines, running almost in parallel to them. This was referred to as the Vienna Road, or the Vienna Highway, because, as you may have guessed, it ran south back to Vienna. This was the main supply line of the Grande Armée. Brune was the endpoint of a chain of depots and French garrisoned towns that stretched back hundreds of miles, all the way to the Rhine and France. Obviously, the Vienna Road was some of the most valuable real estate on the battlefield. It would be a tempting target for the coalition and a position Napoleon would try to hold. The battlefield was mostly low elevation and damp. There were a lot of small streams and ponds, and even some real swampland. This was especially true in the south of the battlefield, near the French right. Areas that were not waterlogged were prone to mud and fog. Still, there were quite a few towns and villages in this area, several of which had been incorporated into the lines of the two armies. There was only one significant piece of really good ground on the battlefield, the Pratzen Heights, a long, broad plateau right in the center of the battlefield that ran roughly parallel to the Goldbach Stream and the French lines. In the weeks before the battle, the French had occupied the Pratzen Heights, 
but Napoleon had conceded it to the enemy without a fight. It was a bit strange for such a skilled general to simply allow the enemy to take the best ground on the battlefield. But, as we'll see, Napoleon had a very good reason to do so. As Bonaparte arranged his forces, he put most of his strength in the north and especially the center of the battlefield. He had around 73,000 men total, and only around 6,000 of them were guarding his right flank. To an outside observer, it looked like Napoleon was favoring the defense of his base of operations, the city of Brune, over the defense of his main line of communication, the Vienna Road, giving his enemies a perfect opportunity to cut off the Grande Armée. Remember, the coalition had badly underestimated both the size and condition of Napoleon's forces, and he had worked very hard to encourage this impression. Bonaparte's great plan for this battle revolved around presenting his right flank as a tempting target. He hoped the coalition leadership would be so tantalized by the prospect of severing the Vienna Road that they would throw all their strength into an attack on the French right. Once they were committed to the right, Napoleon would seize the Pratzen Heights with his strong center and use this commanding position as a wedge to split the coalition army. Then, he could concentrate superior forces to crush one or even both wings of the army at his leisure. Napoleon went to sleep after midnight on December 2nd, calmly confident that the battle would unfold according to his plans. He told his senior commanders to meet at his tent shortly after dawn, in case the disposition of the enemy forces changed significantly during the night. But his plans were basically set. By around four in the morning, French units had begun moving to their final positions and making their last-minute preparations. Things were not going so smoothly at the coalition camp. Around the same time Napoleon was curling up in his bed of straw, the Russian and Austrian leadership had yet to decide on a plan of battle. The coalition commanders and the two emperors spent much of the night in a long council of war. They knew they wanted to attack the French, but beyond that, there was no consensus. The two emperors favored a plan drawn up by the army's chief of staff, an Austrian general named Franz von Weirotter. Weirotter was a cold, professorial character, a career staff officer with little battlefield experience. He had been chief of staff at one of the most important engagements of the last war, the Battle of Hohenlinden, at which his battle plan had led the Austrians to a devastating defeat. Perhaps someone should have given some thought to this poor track record because his plan for Austerlitz would play right into Napoleon's hand. Weirotter wanted to focus most of the army's strength on the French right, with the primary objective of severing the Vienna Road. He wanted to make a secondary attack on the French left as well. Thus, Weirotter believed, the French would be hemmed in on both sides and trapped inside Brune where the Grande Armée could either be destroyed or forced to surrender, much in the same way Napoleon had trapped General Mach at Ulm at the beginning of the war, only a few months earlier. 
If you imagine a carnival strongman grabbing a metal rod by both ends and bending it into the shape of a circle, that is what Weirotter hoped to do to the Grande Armée. In short, Weirotter had completely swallowed Napoleon's deception. He wanted the army to do exactly what the French hoped they would do, leave the all-important Pratzen Heights almost unguarded, and pour most of their strength into the bad, swampy ground around the French right. Weirotter presented his plan in what was, according to one observer, a very dry and pedantic lecture to the Council of War. The two emperors were mesmerized, but some of the generals were not convinced. In particular, the army's nominal commander, General Kutuzov, objected to the weakening of the Allied center. Much has been made of Kutuzov's objections to this plan. He has a lot of fans, even among serious scholars, and it's very romantic to think of him as the one person who saw through Napoleon's trap. But from what we can tell, his objections were actually pretty cautious and muted. He was not behaving like a general who believed his army was on the brink of disaster. General Kutuzov and Emperor Alexander had a strained relationship, so it's possible that he felt he had to hold his tongue so as not to anger his sovereign, who obviously favored this strategy. Whatever the case, Kutuzov's objections were shared by several other officers, including Prince Bagration, who had commanded the rear guard with such skill during the army's retreat through Austria. This matter of weakening the Allied center was discussed for several hours. Finally, sometime after one in the morning, the objectors were worn down, and Weirotter's plan was adopted. Some scholars of this battle will tell you that, at this moment, Napoleon won Austerlitz. That once the coalition leaders had made up their minds to walk into Napoleon's trap, everything that followed the next day was a foregone conclusion. I'm not sure I agree with that, and not only because it would make the subsequent three quarters of this episode totally pointless. Battles are chaotic, and they don't always unfold according to the plans of generals. As we'll see, the coalition troops performed very well at Austerlitz. Napoleon's road to victory would include a lot of twists and obstacles. Come morning, there would be plenty of opportunities for the French to make mistakes and for the Russians and Austrians to get a little good luck. However, there is no getting around the fact that the adoption of Weirotter's plan was a disaster for the coalition. They thought they would be entering the battle with a clear advantage, but in reality, Napoleon was in control. Because it had taken the coalition leadership so long to settle on a plan, many Russian and Austrian units didn't receive their final orders until the very last minute, and then had to immediately move to their starting positions in the dark. This led to confusion, and when dawn came, several coalition regiments were in the wrong place, or were unsure of how they were supposed to proceed once combat began. None of these mistakes were big enough to have a significant impact on the battle, but it was not an auspicious start for the Allies. Bonaparte woke up at around four in the morning. We could probably do an entire episode just on his bizarre sleeping habits, and this was a prime example. He stood up from his bed of straw and greeted his staff, quote, Gentlemen, 
Let us go and begin a grand day. End quote. By now, the Russian and Austrian troops had mostly arrived at their final positions, and Napoleon was able to confirm that his deception had worked. In fact, it seemed to have worked beyond his expectations. Judging by the disposition of their forces, they would be throwing even more of their strength at the French right than Napoleon had anticipated. Remember, Bonaparte had only 6,000 men on this section of the battlefield, and it now looked as though they would be facing around half of the entire coalition army. Bonaparte was expecting reinforcements later that morning, and they would be coming up the Vienna Road right into this section of the battlefield, but he still sent 4,000 more troops from his center to reinforce the right. This would weaken the most crucial maneuver of the battle, the assault on the Pratzen Heights, but Napoleon had little choice. If the coalition actually succeeded in cutting the Vienna Road, all his carefully laid plans would be thrown into chaos. As dawn approached, a thick mist developed over much of the battlefield, clinging to that damp, low-lying ground between the two armies. This was yet another advantage for the French. Napoleon's strong center would be obscured until he was ready to use it. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. There were isolated skirmishes between the scouts and pickets of the two armies, but the Battle of Austerlitz began in earnest around 7 in the morning. On the extreme right of the French line, a column of around 8,000 Austrian infantry stormed the village of Telnitz, one of the strongest positions in this sector of the battlefield. An Austrian officer would remember the scene, quote, Murderous musket fire began, and the smoke was so thick because of the fog that no one could see a single step. The battalions were completely shrouded in smoke, which made the operation much more difficult. End quote. Despite the smoke, the Austrians took the village, then hooked north to attack the neighboring town of Sokolnitz. However, they were stopped dead by a ferocious French counterattack, which retook Telnitz after heavy fighting. But the Austrians were not broken and launched a counterattack of their own. Again, the fighting was intense, but the superior Austrian numbers eventually won out, and both villages fell to the coalition. The fighting raged on the French right for over an hour, while the rest of the battlefield was eerily quiet. As the sun rose, the mists that shrouded much of the field began to slowly burn off. By around eight in the morning, the all-important Pratzen Heights finally came into view from Napoleon's headquarters, and he liked what he saw. Tens of thousands of coalition troops were moving off the heights, 
marching southwest to join the attack on the French right. Within an hour, as many as 40,000 coalition troops, over half their army, would be crammed into a small space between the French lines and a series of frozen ponds and swampy ground just behind the coalition lines. And, more importantly, the Protzen Heights would be almost unoccupied. With so many men crammed into this small space on the French right, the fighting was fierce. The French held on desperately as wave after wave of coalition troops pushed towards the vital Vienna Highway. The Grande Armée was lucky that these attacks were not as well coordinated as the planners had imagined the night before. Those mistakes in deployment just before the battle had delayed several units, and so, rather than arriving as a single blow, there was a constant drumbeat of smaller assaults. The Austrian and Russian attackers suffered terrible casualties as the French resisted tenaciously from good positions, especially in the small villages along the highway, which had been fortified. At Sokolnitz, there was an old manor house known as Sokolnitz Castle, which made a perfect fortress. As the coalition troops approached the castle, they were suddenly raked by canister fire from two concealed French cannon. You may recall from previous episodes that canister shot was like a giant shotgun shell. It was incredibly deadly to tightly packed infantry formations at close range. Huge holes were torn into the Russian attack columns, and for a moment it looked like the attack would falter. But the Russian commander rode out to personally rally his troops, and they were able to press home the attack. The fighting was so intense that after only an hour of battle, some of the frontline units were beginning to run low on ammunition. The men of the Grande Armée fought hard, but they were hopelessly outnumbered. By this point, there were around 28,000 coalition troops on the front line, being resisted by around 4,000 Frenchmen. Under relentless pressure, Napoleon's right flank began to fall back, abandoning those good positions to the Russians and Austrians. Despite the early delays and a tenacious French defense, the coalition attack on Napoleon's right was progressing on schedule. There was now a lull in this sector of the battlefield, as the French regrouped in new defensive positions and the Russians and Austrians recovered and redeployed for the next phase of the attack. Unfortunately for the Allies, those reinforcements Napoleon had been expecting from Vienna had begun to arrive. Despite being forced back by superior numbers, the French right was actually growing stronger and more secure. Combat would continue in this sector of the battlefield, but not with quite the same speed and ferocity as the first few hours of battle. On the Protzen Heights, Emperor Alexander watched his troops marching down into the valley, towards the French right, and he thought they should have been advancing even faster. He rode out to General Kutuzov to see about the delay, asking him, quote, General, why don't you advance? End quote. Kutuzov answered, quote, I wait for all the troops of the column to assemble, end quote. The emperor responded, quote, We are not on a parade ground where one waits for the arrival of all the troops to begin the parade, end quote. Kutuzov replied, quote, 
My lord, it is precisely because we are not on the parade ground that I do not begin. But if that is your order, end quote. As always, the emperor got his way. This exchange has often been interpreted as an expression of Kutuzov's misgivings about the battle plan, and his desire to keep a stronger force in the Allied center. Perhaps that's true, or perhaps he really was just waiting for the whole column to assemble before sending them against the French right. Meanwhile, across the battlefield, Bonaparte kept his eyes on the Pratzen Heights. At around eight in the morning, he turned to Marshal Soult, commander of the French center, and asked him how long it would take for his men to ascend the Pratzen Heights. Soult answered that it would take less than 20 minutes. Napoleon replied, quote, In that case, we will wait a quarter of an hour. End quote. The battle had started only about an hour ago, but it was already almost time to spring the trap. Meanwhile, on the north of the battlefield, on the French left, a column of around 13,000 Russians under Prince Pyotr Bagration was preparing to advance towards the French left. They were supported on their left flank by the Russian Imperial Guard, the best soldiers in the Russian army, and among the best anywhere. Bagration had orders not to press the attack on the French left until he had word from the other side of the battlefield, and could confirm that the assault on the French right had made progress. And so, the action in the northern sector of the battlefield started late. Bagration had been one of the main critics of Weirother's battle plan. He had misgivings about this engagement, and was impatient to get started and get it over with. Napoleon was anxious for him to get moving too. Many of Bagration's units were assembled near the base of the Pratzen Heights, and Napoleon's plan to seize the heights couldn't work until they marched down from those positions to begin their attack. Finally, at around nine in the morning, Bagration began his advance. From his headquarters, Napoleon and his staff watched through their spyglasses as the last major body of coalition troops marched off the Pratzen Heights. Two hours into the battle, the moment had arrived. Napoleon turned to Marshal Soult and ordered him to take the heights. Soult immediately galloped off to personally accompany his troops on this all-important movement. Two of Soult's divisions would spearhead the assault, one under General Saint-Hilaire and the other under General Vendôme. Soult rode among their regiments, shouting encouragement to his men. Napoleon's entire strategy hinged on this movement being carried out with all possible speed, and so, special precautions had been taken to ensure the men marched with urgency. Before the battle, Napoleon himself had ordered that each of these regiments' bands stay on the battlefield. Normally, before a battle, musicians went to the rear to serve as medical orderlies. But Napoleon felt that this march would go faster with a little musical accompaniment. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to learn what songs they played as they marched on the Pratzen Heights. Napoleon also tripled the brandy rations issued to these units. It was pretty typical for soldiers of this era to go into battle with a little liquid courage, but the men climbing the Pratzen Heights had each been issued nearly a pint of hard alcohol so at least some of them were probably downright drunk. The heights themselves were more or less empty, 
That could be observed with a spyglass from French headquarters. But it was hard to say for certain what awaited in the misty valley below. Soult and his men were about to find out. Despite the fog, some of Soult's units were actually able to see the last Allied columns marching away from the plateau. Fortunately for the French, these coalition troops mistook them for Russian or Austrian soldiers. As the French entered the valley, they found before them only two enemy soldiers, an Austrian staff officer named Major Toll and his Russian Cossack bodyguard. Toll assumed he was seeing a Russian assault column that had gotten lost and was marching in the wrong direction. He rode forward to offer them help. He realized his mistake when they opened fire. Major Toll and his bodyguard tore off in the other direction. Once the shock wore off, Toll realized the terrible significance of what he had just seen, and rushed towards the nearest Allied attack column to raise the alarm, and hopefully redirect some troops back towards the heights before it was too late. This was Napoleon's first real stroke of bad luck of the battle. Major Toll's alarm allowed the coalition to redeploy two Russian regiments from the assault column to oppose the French advance up to the Pratzen Heights. It was terrible timing for the French. The troops of General Saint-Hilaire's division had just deployed to assault the small village of Pratzen at the base of the heights, when they were suddenly hit by a volley from an unseen enemy force on their right flank. It was those two Russian regiments which had been summoned by Major Toll, suddenly emerging from the fog. One French regiment broke and ran, but the rest held their nerve. Their corps commander, Marshal Soult, brought up artillery, and with superior firepower, the French were able to brush away the Russians and take the village of Pratzen. To the north, General Von Damme's division had also encountered unexpected resistance at another fortified village. The French were making good progress, but Soult had told Napoleon it would only take 20 minutes to cross the valley and scale the heights. That was obviously now out of the question. Meanwhile, the battle was finally heating up in the north, on Napoleon's left flank. Bagration had begun his advance, and Bonaparte ordered Marshals Lannes and Bernadotte to march out to meet him. The French needed to keep Bagration and his men engaged and occupied, to prevent them from playing any role in the attacks on the Pratzen Heights. Napoleon's generals would do their best to drive a wedge between Bagration and the Heights. The preliminary fighting in this sector of the battlefield focused on the village of Blazowitz. It was first secured by the French, but Bagration redeployed two battalions of the Russian Imperial Guard, who took the village with the bayonet. The Imperial Guard division was supposed to be the reserve of the coalition army. It was not a good sign for the Allies that parts of it were already being deployed just over two hours into the battle, when the fighting was still going relatively well for the coalition. By 9.30, the entire French left and most of Bagration's column were engaged in furious fighting. The ground here was relatively good compared to the center and south of the battlefield, and there was plenty of room to maneuver. Both sides had a lot of artillery and most of their cavalry concentrated in this sector, so the fighting was intense. 
Marshal Lon, on the extreme left of the French line, ordered one of his divisions forward to assault the Allied position. The coalition cavalry charged to counter them, and for a moment, it looked like the horsemen would envelop the advancing French. Then, at the last second, a small group of French cavalry arrived on the scene. They had no chance of defeating this large contingent of enemy horsemen in a straight-up fight. So instead, they dismounted, formed a firing line, and drilled volleys into the approaching enemy cavalry with their short carbine muskets. They must have looked a little ridiculous, slogging around on the ground in their gaudy uniforms and long shiny boots, sabers clanking at their sides. But the tactic worked. The coalition charge was stopped dead. Despite holding off the coalition attack, the French left was paying a terrible price. They were right in the teeth of the Russian artillery. According to one report, nearly 5% of the total French casualties of the entire battle were suffered here on the French left in the space of under five minutes as the Russian cannon tore into Marshal Lannes' corps. Bagration counterattacked, this time with infantry but again the French held firm. After repulsing this attack, Lon turned his attention back to the village of Blazovitz, and was finally able to push the Imperial Guard out of the village, at the point of the bayonet. The commander of the French Cavalry Corps, Marshal Murat, had been watching this action with great interest. He was waiting for an opportunity to launch a cavalry charge, to push Bagration's column northwards, away from the Pratzen Heights. Remember, Napoleon wanted to create a wedge between Bagration and the high ground at the center of the battlefield. Murat hoped to make his cavalry that wedge. With the fall of Blazovitz, Murat had his opportunity. He gave the signal, and 3,000 French cavalry drew their sabers and began to trot towards the target. As soon as Bagration realized what was happening, he ordered his own cavalry to make a countercharge. Nearly 6,000 Allied horsemen rode out to meet Murat. The coalition cavalry had the numbers, but they were blasted by musket fire from the French infantry as they advanced, and the French had the edge in training and morale. There was furious hand-to-hand combat for several minutes as the two forces met, talking about nearly 10,000 men on horseback crashing into one another and then fighting it out with sabers. It must have been quite a scene. As the fighting intensified, it seemed like the superior numbers of the coalition cavalry would win out. But Murat still had cards left to play. He had not deployed his whole force. He called forward two regiments of cuirassiers from his reserves. The cuirassiers were the heaviest of the regular heavy cavalry. These units recruited the biggest men and rode the biggest horses. They almost looked like medieval knights armored with steel helmets and breastplates, and carrying gigantic straight swords. Murat ordered the cuirassiers to charge into the flank of the enemy cavalry. They had to ride through a gauntlet of Russian musket and artillery fire to get into position, and suffered heavy casualties. But finally, they got into position, and the call to charge sounded. The armored horsemen began their mad gallop into the enemy flank. Apparently, the sound of the charge making impact could be heard all over the battlefield. 
Later in the 19th century, people would compare the sound of heavy cavalry charging home to the sound of a train crash. Which makes sense. All of that steel making sudden impact at high velocity. The coalition cavalry tried to hold on, but the pressure from the cuirassiers was too much, and the survivors were soon galloping back to their own lines. Amazingly, somehow, an Austrian general, the Prince of Liechtenstein, managed to rally some of these routed horsemen and turn them around to charge back at the pursuing French. Murat's men were surprised, but beat them back relatively easily. Napoleon now had his wedge. Marshal Murat's cavalry was now advancing into the space between Bagration's column and the Pratzen Heights, and the rest of the coalition army. As Marshal Lon's infantry continued their advance, Bagration was slowly inching even further away from the heights and from the rest of the army. The fighting in the northern sector of the battlefield had been bloody and brutal, but the men of the French left had done exactly what Napoleon needed them to do. Meanwhile, there was still intense fighting in the south along the French right. Remember, this is where the battle had begun, where the Allies had taken Napoleon's bait and sent most of their strength against the Vienna Road. Despite dogged French resistance, the coalition attack had made some progress during the first few hours of the battle. But unfortunately for the Russians and the Austrians, the French line had bent, not broken. By now, reinforcements were streaming in from Vienna and Napoleon dispatched several thousand more reserves to this sector. The French were still outnumbered and on the defensive, but their strength in this sector had almost doubled since the battle began. The coalition advance had slowed to a crawl. The French fought for every inch of ground. Whenever the Allies made progress, the Grande Armée counterattacked immediately. The French commander in this sector was Marshal Louis-Nicolas de Vaux, who would soon come to be known as the Iron Marshal, in part for his skill at fighting on the defensive. His performance at Austerlitz was that of a master at work. The performance of his soldiers was no less astonishing. Several of these units had marched over 70 miles, or 110 kilometers, in the space of two days, just to arrive at Austerlitz in time to take part in this desperate fighting. The battle took place on a Monday, and some of these men had not eaten a real meal since Friday. But these exhausted, hungry men were holding their own against a superior enemy force, almost four times their size. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. While the French right held on, the battle was being decided in the center, on the Pratzen Heights. Napoleon had hoped to sweep up the plateau without any enemy resistance. The commander of the French center, Marshal Soult, had assured him it could be done in just 20 minutes. That had not quite panned out. Two small villages in the valley had turned out to be garrisoned by Austrian troops, 
and they'd had the bad luck to run into Major Toll of the Austrian General Staff. By around 10 in the morning, half an hour into the French attack on the Pratzen Heights, coalition headquarters began receiving reports of fighting in their center. General Kutuzov was still not sure exactly what they were up against, but started the painstaking process of redirecting units from the attack on the French right back to the Pratzen Heights to counter this unexpected French attack. He was lucky that some of the local commanders on the scene had already spotted the French, anticipated these orders, and were on the march towards the center. But he was unlucky that these units had arrived piecemeal. There had been no time to coordinate their actions. After a devastating French volley, one Russian regiment broke and ran for the rear. As they fled, they ran right past coalition headquarters which was located just beyond the Pratzen Heights. Emperor Alexander of Russia rode out to rally them, and was completely ignored. Apparently, the young emperor was quite insulted, and for years afterwards found little ways to punish the regiment for this slight. None of the resistance in the coalition center was very effective, but it did succeed in slowing Sewell's drive on the heights. This maneuver that was supposed to take 20 minutes wound up lasting closer to two hours. Napoleon had hoped that the Russians and Austrians would be taken totally unaware and not recognize the danger until his troops had already secured the Pratzen Heights. This was very optimistic. Even with the mist covering half the battlefield and the heights almost empty of coalition troops, this was a battlefield. There were a lot of eyes around and a lot of people galloping around on horseback. It was almost inevitable that someone would catch a glimpse of a force of 20,000 men moving right through the center of the battlefield. But, by the time the Allied commanders became fully aware of the size and scale of this French attack, it was too late. The coalition would not be able to organize a true defense of the heights, all they could really manage was to gather together any nearby units and throw them at the French as quickly as possible, hoping for some kind of miracle. Regiments that were marching towards the French right had to suddenly turn around and rush back the way they came. As you might imagine, this quickly turned into an organizational nightmare, as units got lost in the fog, became mingled together, and became separated from their commanders. In their attack on the French right, the Allies had jammed a huge amount of manpower into a very small area of soggy, mist-shrouded ground. It was not easy to redeploy these units quickly, especially with most of them engaged in intense fighting. The Allies had been caught flat-footed, but with furious effort, they had managed to bring several units to bear against the advancing French center. There was bloody and confused fighting all along the line. As the 10th Regiment of the Line of General Saint-Hilaire's division advanced, a sudden loud noise could be heard through the mist. Hundreds of voices shouting out, Oorah! The traditional Russian battle cry used since the time of the Mongol invasions. Before anyone could react, the 10th Line was almost totally engulfed by charging Russian infantry. The neighboring unit, the 36th Line, began to waver, but then one of its officers, Major Labardie, grabbed the regimental eagle and began to march forward, crying out, quote, 
let brave men follow me, end quote. Fortunately for him, the rest of the regiment obeyed, and soon the Russians were pushed back and the 10th was relieved. These counterattacks were uncoordinated, but they were also unexpected and surprisingly strong. The French divisional commander, General Saint-Hilaire, gathered together his senior subordinates for an impromptu council of war. He floated the idea of temporarily falling back to receive these counterattacks from a proper defensive position. One of his colonels responded immediately, almost cutting him off. Quote, General, if we take a step back, we are lost. We have only one means of leaving here with honor. It is to put our heads down and attack all in front of us, and above all, not to give the enemy time to count our numbers. End quote. He was right. Napoleon's plan depended on speed and audacity. If the attack stalled, the Allies would rush more units to the heights. If they managed to hold the heights, Bonaparte's plan could not succeed, and the whole momentum of the battle could shift. Saint-Hilaire's division held on and continued to press the attack. Elsewhere in the center, a group of Austrian infantry tried to get close to the advancing French by pretending to be their allies, calling out, quote, Don't fire, we're Bavarians, end quote. Despite the heavy fog, a French officer saw through this trick and called up his artillery support, telling the gunners to load their cannon with double shot for close-range fire. He waited for these false Bavarians to get close, then unleashed those double-loaded cannons along with a devastating musket volley. The Austrian commander went down wounded, and his men broke and ran. Many of these Russian and Austrian regiments who found themselves in the center during Soult's attack fought very well, and several French units suffered heavy casualties in almost two hours of furious fighting. But it was no use. Thanks to their awkward deployment, the Allies had only been able to muster around 5,000 men to oppose this attack, and those 5,000 had gone in piecemeal and practically blind to the positions and strength of the French. By noon, Marshal Soult's men had secured almost the entire Pratzen Heights. The Grande Armée had done it. It hadn't gone quite as seamlessly as Napoleon had hoped, but the most important phase of his plan was now complete. The coalition army was dismembered. The majority of their forces were still deployed against the French right, and were now in a very perilous position, engaged with the French in front of them, hemmed in on their right by Soult's men on the heights, and on their rear and left flank by a series of streams and lakes, surrounded by swampy ground. They weren't quite surrounded but unless someone pushed the French off the heights, they would have no choice but to make a retreat through that difficult terrain to their rear and left. Meanwhile, to the north, General Bagration's column was hard-pressed, being pushed slowly back, away from the battlefield. They were fighting to survive, and would be of little use to the rest of the army. At coalition headquarters, they were still struggling to get a handle on the situation. By now, it was clear that this surprise French attack on the center was no feint, but a major offensive. But there was still a great deal of confusion as to the size, number, and even location of the French columns. General Kutuzov rode up close to the action to try to get a handle on what was happening, 
so close that he took a French musket ball to the face. Fortunately for Kutuzov and the Allied army, this was only a graze. It barely cut his cheek. Still, when Emperor Alexander heard his most senior commander had been hit, he immediately sent his personal physician to treat Kutuzov. When the doctor arrived at the front, the old general waved him off, quote, Thank his majesty, and assure him my wound is not serious, end quote. He then gestured towards the advancing French column, and continued, quote, But that is mortal, end quote. Fortunately for the coalition, many field commanders in or near the center had begun to realize what was happening, and were moving their forces towards the Pratzen Heights, launching counterattacks to attempt to dislodge the French before they could take up defensive positions that would fully take advantage of this good ground. These Allied units now moving towards the center included the Imperial Guard Division of the Russian Army. Not only were these some of the best units on the battlefield, they were among the best anywhere on the planet. Before we dive into the next part of the story, it's worth dwelling on what type of men made up the Russian Imperial Guard. Like the Guard's units of every other military, they led a somewhat pampered existence. They got the best equipment and food, and enjoyed far more prestige than any other units in the army. A private in a Guard's regiment was considered equivalent to a sergeant in a regular army unit, and the officers were considered two ranks above their regular counterparts. They were very aristocratic. Even some of the privates brought servants with them to war. Perhaps a little absurd, but this meant they were better educated and felt more of a personal stake in the state they were defending. They were also physically imposing. The minimum height requirement to join the Russian Imperial Guard was 5 foot 6, or 171 centimeters, compared to just 5 feet, or 155 centimeters, for the regular infantry. Perhaps most importantly, the sergeants and corporals of the guards' units were routinely promoted to officers' ranks in the regular army. This was one of the only reliable ways a Russian soldier could rise from the ranks. So, there were a lot of ambitious young men in these units, eager to distinguish themselves on the battlefield by any means necessary. The men of the guard were highly motivated, and often willing to undertake almost suicidal risks. As the Imperial Guard Division moved into action on the afternoon of the Battle of Austerlitz, the fate of most of the Allied army was resting on their broad shoulders. There were no other large Allied formations capable of challenging the French remaining in the center of the battlefield. The Russian guards launched their counterattack on the Pratzen Heights with a bayonet charge from a distance of about 750 feet, or 230 meters. This was quite unusual. Typically, a unit would maneuver relatively close at a slower speed, and the order to charge would only come at the very last minute. Instead, the men of the Russian Imperial Guard were being asked to jog roughly the length of two soccer fields, in formation, with all their gear, under fire from the enemy, and then fight in hand-to-hand -hand combat. It sounds insane, but the French had outclassed the Russians in firepower all day and the Russian Imperial Guard was famous for its skill in hand-to-hand -hand combat. So, 
you could make the argument that it was smart for them to close the distance as quickly as possible and engage with the bayonet to minimize the French advantage in firepower. In any case, the fusiliers of the guard didn't question their orders for a second. When the order to charge sounded, they fixed their bayonets and cried out hurrah as they set out for the French lines. Formations began to break down as some of the men began to run towards the enemy, almost like they were racing for the privilege of being first into the French lines. The enthusiasm must have been infectious, because soon all discipline had broken down, and the entire Russian attack had become a disorganized torrent of giant bloodthirsty guardsmen. To their credit, the French kept their nerve in the face of this furious onslaught. They did exactly what they were supposed to do in these circumstances, poured fire into the advancing Russians, then held back to release a devastating volley right at the last minute. Against a lesser enemy, these type of tactics usually were enough to stop a charge. But the men of the Russian Imperial Guard didn't even slow down as their comrades dropped all around them. The charge slammed home, and the thin French line was scattered like bowling pins. Even after running all that distance and engaging the French in hand-to-hand combat, the Russian guards seemed to gain momentum. Some stopped to engage the survivors of the French line, but the rest pushed onwards, only to discover that they had barely begun to penetrate the French forces in this sector of the battlefield. Behind the scattered first line was a much stronger second line, which included artillery. The Russians tried to continue the attack, but not even the vaunted Imperial Guard could stand up to this kind of firepower especially not after their 230-meter dash and sharp hand-to-hand fight. The attack stalled, and the guardsmen began to fall back. But the Imperial Guard was not beaten yet. Next, it was the Guard Cavalry's turn. The French were still reeling from the attack by the infantry. This was the best opportunity the Guard's horsemen were going to get. The call to charge rang out, and the men of the guard's cavalry drew their swords and began to trot forward. Among their number were the elite of the elite, a 200-man unit known as the Chevalier Guards. These were the personal bodyguards of Emperor Alexander. The men of the Chevalier Guard were almost ludicrously aristocratic. Even the privates were sons of dukes and counts and even princes. They were almost more like a medieval retinue of knights than a modern military unit. All through the day, the Russians had struggled to coordinate the three branches of their army. Infantry, cavalry, and artillery performed best when they operated together as a complete system. Individual Russian units had fought well, but they had only rarely achieved this synergy between the three branches, as the French did so easily. This attack was an exception. The infantry had softened up the French defenses, and now, as the guard's cavalry rode into action, the horse artillery of the Imperial Guard was right behind them. As the French infantry bunched together in squares to repel the charging cavalry, they found their tightly packed formations raked by close-range cannon fire. The first French unit encountered by the charging Russians, the 4th Regiment of the Line, was literally torn apart. 
They suffered so many casualties so quickly that they could not fill the gaps in their square. Charging Russian horsemen rode into the formation, and the fourth lost even more men. The survivors did their best to bunch together to try to hold the cavalry at bay, but it was little use. Once their square was broken, an infantry unit was nearly helpless against cavalry. Several members of the Chevalier Guard swarmed towards the Regimental Eagle, eager to take a prize. The French standard bearer was killed, but someone else lunged forward to pick up the Eagle. He too was killed, and the regiment's sergeant major picked it up. Despite suffering several saber wounds, he held off the horsemen as best he could. Until he could resist no more, and a Russian guardsman was able to grab hold of the eagle and galloped off towards the Russian lines. By now, Napoleon had moved his headquarters to the heights to get closer to the action. He was about to get a lot closer than he would have guessed. As the routed survivors of the 4th Regiment of the Line made their way to the rear, they ran right past the Emperor and his staff. One of Bonaparte's aides described the scene, quote, This battalion, belonging to the 4th Regiment, almost passed over ourselves and Napoleon himself, our attempts to stop it being all in vain. The unfortunate fellows were quite distracted with fear and would listen to no one. In reply to our approaches for thus departing the field of battle, they shouted mechanically, Long live the emperor, while fleeing faster than ever. End quote. By now, the cavalry of the Russian Imperial Guard had made such good progress that they were beginning to come within visual range of French headquarters. Berthier, the emperor's loyal chief of staff, pointed out a large body of Russian horsemen and said, quote, what a splendid crowd of prisoners they are bringing back for you, end quote. Fortunately for the Grande Armée, its commander had better sense than its chief of staff. Napoleon dispatched one of his closest aides, General Jean Rapp, with several squadrons of light cavalry from his own Imperial Guard to investigate this body of horsemen and, if necessary, drive them away. General Rapp would later recall what he saw as he and his men approached. Quote, the cavalry was in the midst of our squares and was cutting down our soldiers. The Russians broke contact and rushed against me, while four pieces of their horse artillery came up at a gallop. I advanced in good order. I told my men, over there you can see our brothers and friends being trodden underfoot. Avenge our comrades. Avenge our standards. End quote. By all accounts, what ensued was complete pandemonium. Once Rapp and his men rode into the fray, there were French cavalry, French infantry, Russian cavalry, and Russian artillery all mingled together, fighting through fog and thick gunpowder smoke. By now, some of the survivors of the initial Russian infantry charge had reformed, and some of them were joining the battle as well. Between the chaotic tactical situation, the fog, the gunpowder smoke, and the dust kicked up by all these horses, no one could see what was going on, not even the participants. Napoleon called in more reinforcements, including artillery, and more cavalry from his imperial guard. These included the horse grenadiers of the guard, which served as heavy cavalry, much like the cuirassiers who had charged with such force earlier in the day. These were the biggest men in the Imperial Guard, riding the biggest horses. 
They carried huge straight swords that were long enough to be used as lances. There must have been some absolutely incredible scenes playing out inside that cloud of smoke and dust. These were the best soldiers in Europe facing each other in desperate hand-to-hand combat, the cream of the two largest and most experienced armies in the world. A nearby French infantryman tried to describe the scene. Quote, the horse grenadiers passed us like a streak of lightning and fell upon the enemy. For a quarter of an hour, there was a desperate struggle, and that quarter of an hour seemed like an age to us. We could see nothing through the smoke and dust. We feared we should see our comrades sabered in their turn. We were advancing slowly behind them, and if they had been defeated, we would have been next. There was confusion for several minutes. Everything went pell-mell and no one knew who had the upper hand. But our grenadiers came off conquerors, and returned to their position behind the emperor. General Ropp came back covered with blood, bringing a Russian prince with him. End quote. Despite the incredible morale and prestige of the Russian Imperial Guard, their counterparts in the French Imperial Guard won the day. After a legendary struggle, the Russian horsemen broke off and began to ride back to their lines. Few of them made it. The fresher French cavalry rode them down and took hundreds of prisoners. Almost all 200 of the Russian emperor's personal bodyguards, the Chevalier Guard, were taken prisoner. Napoleon remarked, quote, Many fine ladies in St. Petersburg will lament this day. End quote. He was right. The Chevalier Guard were one of the focal points of the Russian capital's social scene. After Austerlitz, the Chevalier Guard wouldn't be free for any balls or salons for quite some time. A captured officer of the Russian Guard's artillery was brought before Napoleon. He was in a state of agitation, ranting, quote, I have lost my battery, I am dishonored, end quote. Bonaparte consoled him, quote, Calm yourself, young man, and remember this, there is no shame in being conquered by Frenchmen. End quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Russian Imperial Guard had been the last remaining force in the Allied center capable of challenging the French. They had shown incredible toughness and bravery, but it hadn't been enough. The last chance for the coalition army to stave off disaster had failed. With the defeat of the Russian guard, Napoleon was able to secure his position on the Pratsen Heights, 
and finally turn his attention back to his right flank, where the majority of the coalition troops were still concentrated from their attacks earlier in the day. It was around two in the afternoon, seven hours into the battle. Napoleon's plan was now complete. All that remained was to see how plentiful the fruits of victory would be. Bonaparte was in complete control, able to bring almost his entire army to bear on less than 40,000 enemy soldiers, who were trapped in a vulnerable position, with their only line of escape running over swamps and across lakes and streams. The commander of the French right flank, Marshal Davout, had been on the defensive all day. His troops had been outnumbered and hard-pressed by constant enemy attacks. Now the tables had very much turned. The enemy troops in front of his position were no longer menacing, but increasingly desperate and disorganized, as they struggled to disengage from the French and plot a course away from what was now clearly a defeat. As you might imagine, Russian and Austrian morale plummeted as the men began to realize just how bad their situation was. Marshal Davout sent out a general order to his entire corps. It was only one sentence, quote, let no one escape, end quote. All along the French right flank, Davout's men advanced. After a whole day spent in desperate defense, it must have felt good to finally be on the offensive and see the enemy crumbling despite their superior numbers. One of the commanders of the coalition forces in this area described what happened in an official report. Quote, I was hard-pressed by the enemy and was under fierce and continuous canister fire, suffering many killed and wounded, while my remaining forces were in confusion. Despite my dispatches to headquarters, I received no information at all. Many soldiers, now incessantly engaged in battle from seven in the morning to four in the afternoon, had no ammunition left. I could do nothing but retreat, and was assured by my Austrian guides that I could find favorable ground on our right flank to extricate my troops. I gave the order to march along the swamps at the bottom of the hill to conceal how disordered my troops were, and to reorganize them, to overcome any future difficulties, and join the main army. However, since the enemy fire kept pursuing us, all the efforts of my generals and staff to reorganize our men proved to be in vain. Enemy cavalry charged our troops, who became further disordered and were captured by the enemy. End quote. That's how it went for many coalition units in this phase of the battle. By now, they were the only Allied forces still engaged with the French, which freed up every French cannon on the battlefield to bombard them mercilessly. Units from Marshal Soult's corps came down from the Pratzen Heights to join Davout as he pushed into the increasingly panicked enemy. As he watched from the heights, Napoleon remarked, quote, It is Aboukir. End quote. You might remember the Battle of Aboukir from a past episode. It had taken place in Egypt in 1799. Napoleon and the Army of the Orient had managed to trap an enemy army with their backs to the sea. Unlike at Aboukir, some coalition units did manage to slip away, wade through the freezing streams, and pick their way through the swamps to safety. Others took their chances running over these small frozen lakes that dotted this sector of the battlefield. 
This takes us to probably the most controversial episode of the whole battle, the incident at the Sachin Pond. According to the traditional narrative of the battle, at this point, Russian soldiers began running over a series of small frozen lakes at the rear of the Allied position, known as the Sachin Pond, or Sachin Ponds, or Sachin Lakes. Seeing that the ice did not break, and their comrades were able to cross safely, more and more Russian soldiers took their chances and began to cross the ice. Apparently, French artillerymen watched this movement, waited for a significant number of Russian troops to step onto the ice, and then opened fire, breaking the ice and sending thousands of Russian infantry to a miserable, freezing death in the waters below. This is sometimes presented as some kind of war crime, and while it's certainly not pleasant to think about, I think that's a bit much. We've seen time and again that attacking retreating troops was a standard part of warfare in this era. Every European army did it. As we've seen in many battles, this is actually how the winning side inflicted the majority of the casualties on the losing side. Obviously, drowning in freezing water is a horrible way to go, but taking a saber blow to the back of the head or a pistol shot to the spine is not a good way to go either. However it happens, you wind up just as dead. However, this may all be a moot point, because modern researchers have combed every inch of this part of the battlefield and have never found any evidence of any kind of mass drowning event connected with the battle. Extensive excavations of the area around the Sachin Pond have found very little Napoleonic-era military equipment, and the remains of probably fewer than a dozen people, which we can't even be sure actually date from the battle. It's possible that something like this occurred, maybe on a smaller scale or on some other part of the battlefield, or that the bodies of these unfortunate Russian soldiers were removed at some point, and the records of this removal have been lost to history. But the simplest explanation would be that this never happened. That would be a bit strange, because this incident is described in several sources. Perhaps it's an urban legend from the aftermath of the battle itself, a rumor that spread around the camps of the Grande Armée after the fighting, which people then repeated years later in their memoirs as if they had seen it. Whatever the case, and however it happened, a lot of Russian and Austrian troops were killed as the French closed in. The last organized resistance came from a few thousand Russians under General Dmitry Dokhturov, who managed to create a small defensive line on the last patch of solid ground before the swamps. He held off the French for a few minutes, to buy time for the men escaping behind him. Then, just after four in the afternoon, he gave the last order of the battle, probably the order any officer of this era dreaded the most every man for himself. His unit disintegrated as the troops scattered to find their own way through the swamps before the French could close in. To the north, Prince Bagration had managed to break off contact with the French and was retreating east. In the center, coalition resistance had been totally broken hours earlier, and the survivors were in disorder running east, south, southeast, northeast any direction as long as it was away from the French. The Battle of Austerlitz was over. 
Napoleon had won his decisive victory. The coalition forces lost around 16,000 men killed or wounded, plus a whopping 20,000 captured. That represents almost exactly half the soldiers they had brought into the battle, a staggering 50% casualty rate. The French suffered around 9,000 killed, wounded, or captured. Not much compared to the coalition losses, but that still represents over 10% of Napoleon's field army. Austerlitz was an absolute triumph, but it had not come without a cost. Those casualty numbers are stark, but they still don't capture the full extent of the Allied defeat. The Grande Armée had also captured 180 cannon, 50 battle flags, and massive stockpiles of food, equipment, and ammunition. The remains of the coalition army were now totally disorganized, scattered over a huge area. Bonaparte had shattered his enemy into a million pieces. With the survivors in panic and the French on their heels, it would be a long time before these battered remains could become something resembling an army once again. At around five in the evening, the French agreed to a ceasefire, and the grisly work of treating the wounded and burying the dead began. Napoleon's work was finally done. He sat down and dashed off a short letter to his wife, quote, I have beaten the Austro-Russian army commanded by the two emperors. I am a little tired. I have camped in the open for eight days, and as many freezing nights. Tomorrow, I shall be able to rest in the castle of Prince Kaunitz, and I should be able to snatch two or three hours of sleep there. The Russian army is not only beaten, but destroyed. I embrace you, Napoleon. End quote. Prince Kaunitz was one of the greatest Austrian statesmen of the previous generation, and his family estate was actually in the town of Austerlitz. Napoleon was probably relishing the irony of spending a night in the ancestral home of one of his enemy's most respected leaders. Before the battle, Bonaparte had told his soldiers that they needed to finish this campaign with a thunderclap. But... What they had achieved on the field of Austerlitz on December 2nd, 1805, would resonate louder and longer than any thunderclap. The effects of this triumph would reverberate across the European continent and beyond for ten bloody years. And that's just the immediate impact. The long-term significance of Austerlitz can still be felt today. But we've already gone very long in this episode so I'll leave this discussion of the aftermath for next episode. Until then, thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? 
or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti. If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt.